Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season three, episode four, and today we are going to be talking about High Noon from 1952. It is the 70-year anniversary of this film and also the second movie in our little mini Gary Cooper series, our mini Cooper series. <laughs> mini Cooper uh, series. <laughs> That was an unplanned pun. Uh, as always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? Good. It is President's Day, so we are, you know, President's Day for us, obviously not for the listeners because of the time travel of podcasts, but enjoying a little day off and getting to chat with you and talk about a a 70-year-old movie. Yeah, it's a... Though, it te- I don't know, this one didn't feel 70 years old to me, but we can talk about that when we get into, like, the reactions and everything, but it, like, it felt current to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's dive right in here and talk a little bit about personal history. I believe neither one of us had seen this movie before, is that correct? That is correct. I had never seen this movie. I'm pretty familiar with a lot of Westerns because my dad is a huge Western fan. And he watches a lot of westerns. There were always westerns on at our house, so I'm I'm familiar with the genre because of that. But it's not one that I usually actively seek out to watch myself. What I have done a lot of is read a lot of Louis L'Amour, kind of the like you know grandfather of the western genre in novels. So mm-hmm. very familiar with the genre on that account, and that's mostly an influence of my dad, who's read every single Louis L'Amour novel, like, and there's a lot of them. That's a, that's a very long list. And whenever he finishes reading them all, he starts over at the beginning. He'll read other <laughs> books in between, but he's always got a Louis L'Amour novel that he's reading. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Yeah, I, so my experience with Westerns is basically zero. I've seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I've seen, I've seen a good amount of, like, things that are inspired on westerns or things that are taking influence from westerns so obviously i've seen firefly and serenity which are space western which is a space western and then (laughs) watching this sort of made the first season of westworld a lot of that click into place and realizing where a lot of that came from and i think a lot of it came specifically from this movie at least a lot of that imagery was very very similar you know what other influence just real quick to tie into that i felt was very similar was the recent um season of the book of boba fett i feel like had a lot of you know connections that i was seeing in it but anyway continue Mm, yeah yeah there was especially in the later episodes just some straight western sequences in that one yeah. And the the other thing I realized when I was researching is I've seen good portions of this movie because of our recent watch through of The Sopranos. High Noon has a lot of scenes that show up and Tony Soprano refers to Gary Cooper in this movie a lot. It just was not when I watched it, it was just like a random Gary Cooper film. You know, I didn't know specifically which one it was. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about 1952. That's, 
this movie was released July 24th, 1952. Uh, <laughs> maybe the the summer blockbuster of the time. And there there wasn't a, a ton of things that I pulled for this that, that I wanted to talk about, but I did pull that on April 7th, the American Research Bureau reported that the marriage license and I Love Lucy episode was the first episode of television that was seen in 10 million homes around the country the night that the show aired. And I Love Lucy had debuted, what, maybe like seven months, yeah, six months before this. It debuted on October 15th, 1951. And so we're really starting to see a change where more and more television sets are getting into households and that's going to become a large form of entertainment, maybe putting a little less emphasis on cinema or a little more emphasis on entertainment in the homes. It wouldn't be until I believe 1955 is the year where the number of televisions in households crossed the 50% threshold, but we are, we are creeping towards that mark. And, you know, I think that people sometimes don't realize how prevalent I Love Lucy is and was in the culture at the time period. Um, mm-hmm. It's, a, you know, as you said, the, the people are getting more televisions and so it's spreading. And I Love Lucy is a big part of that as people are watching. But it, the, the last episode of I Love Lucy ends up with like 75% of the people in the country watching it as it aired. Which is yeah. just in, uh, incredible numbers. And you would there's nothing that you could put on television or on any in media that would reach that kind of pervasiveness nowadays. I just don't think... Maybe it's possible, but I can't think of anything that would even possibly achieve that. So, anyway. No, I remember looking when the Game of Thrones finale aired and being like wondering, wow, I wonder if this is the highest percentage of people watching a show of all time. And it just like was not even close. Yeah, pales in comparison. Yeah, the numbers were huge for nowadays, but now there's just too much variety. There's too much stuff to watch. So it's hard to get a higher concentration of of human eyeballs around the country. For sure. Though, though movies at the time were going through kind of I don't know if you'd call it a slump, but because it was competing with TV, people were just, you know, watching TV instead of going out to the movie theater all the time like they had previously. So that affects, you know, what kinds of films are coming out, what kinds of things people are going to watch in the theater and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. The other thing that I pulled from this year, and it sort of relates to to last week's episode, we had mentioned when... Anne Frank had made her first first entry in her diary. And this year, 10 years later, was when her diary was published, June 15th of this year. So just a little a little over a month before this movie came came out. And it also slightly relates to this film because our director, Fred Zinnemann, was an Austrian Jew whose parents both died in the Holocaust, and that's how he ended up in in the United States, emigrated here, and got his, we'll talk about him a little bit in our personnel section, but yeah, got got over to Hollywood and was able to make a career for himself. For sure, and I think you see, I think you see 
his perspective on some of those things on the screen. But we can, we'll talk about that when we get into the film. Good plan. And then the only other thing that I had pulled because mostly because it relates to a previous episode we have done is November 1st, the U.S. detonated their power. <laughs> it should take some responsibility, I suppose. Uh, first hydrogen bomb. So that relates, of course, to our Godzilla episode, which was from last season. And it relates to, it, you know, I was looking at the dates on this and some of the events, and I was like, wait a second, these feel familiar because we did, we covered Godzilla that was two years later, and so I was remembering some of these things. But it also relates to one of the major events that was happening in U.S. history at the time period was the Second Red Scare, McCarthyism as it's mm-hmm. generally known, and this was right at the height of of Joseph McCarthy's influence on policy in the United States. And this film is generally regarded as a metaphor for McCarthyism and the Hollywood blacklist. The writer uh, intended it to be read that way. And there's a lot of things in 1952. Like, for example, the play The Crucible debuted in 1952 as well. That's also a metaphor for McCarthyism and the Second Red Scare and the Hollywood blacklist and all of those things. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about 1952, or should we move on and talk about personnel and stats? Let's do it. All right. So this movie had a budget of just around $700,000, $730,000. It ended up getting box office receipts of $12 million, and the it looks like just a little over a quarter of that was in this year. So I think a lot of that came from re-releases, this <laughs> huge spoiler for American film history becomes one of the highest regarded films from the time period and is on a lot of like best of lists. So the from from 1952, it's only the 10th highest grossing film of the year. It's actually tied for 10th with Son of Pale Face and the first couple on there. I, I haven't actually seen any of the films on this list, but they're The Greatest Show on Earth, and then The Snows of Kilimanjaro, and then Hans Christian Andersen. Have you have you seen any of these top 10, Maddie? I've seen Ivanhoe, uh, and I'm familiar with The Quiet Man. I've seen, seen bits and pieces of it. But yeah, those are the ones that I've seen. Though I know, for comparison, The Greatest Show on Earth had a budget of $4 million. So just like... Oh my goodness. Um, so a comparison in where movies budgets for movies at the time period were at compared to high noon uh 700,000 730,000 was a a paltry sum for how much their budget was yeah that's a really really good return it was a good return for for the year as well yeah it's a it's a really successful you wouldn't you know it's not like it was a comparable to like a huge blockbuster or something like that but the return on the investment was a lot better than most everything else that came out that year so that's a that's a pretty good deal yeah i i'd take that return if i you know had seven hundred and thirty thousand dollars <laughs> yeah hmm. but maybe alas. with the the profits from from stream it we can get up there yeah once once we see some of those profits come in we can we can yeah. figure that out so <laughs> steadily rolling in (laughs) it'll be wonderful so there were a couple people that i had pulled that i wanted to talk about and they're sort of 
intertwined here. So the first is Fred Zinneman, who we mentioned briefly, the director of this film. And the other is Dmitry Tiomkin, who's the composer of this film. And they are, this was their, so Dmitry Tiomkin had worked, had several movies before this, I think five movies, and he had worked primarily with Frank Capra. So he had done You Can't Take It With You in 38, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 39, Meet John Doe 41, and then It's a Wonderful Life. And then he split from Frank Capra and did his first film with Fred Zinneman in 1950 and then did High Noon with him in 1952. And the I, I think his score for this film is just really fantastic. Some of it is... A lot of it is aided based on the the film does something pretty clever sonically in that it opens with a ballad that was written for this movie. And then the entire score is composed off of theme. Almost the entire score is composed off of themes from that song. And so by placing it in your ear at the beginning and then repeating them, it makes it something that is very melodic and it 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 serves as an anchoring for your ear for sure and it does on to. it does a lot of variations on uh on that song do not forsake me oh my darling um, yeah that's what it's called so a lot well, of variations that's what it's known as yeah exactly i think it's technically called high noon uh that's probably right yeah but you it also the song kind of outlines the plot of the entire movie so Oh, does it? I didn't. I didn't pay enough attention to the lyrics, or didn't know the plot of the movie well enough to notice. I mean, it's in vague terms. It's not like a spoiler or anything, but it's it's interesting. And so then, as the film is going through, the 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 song plays over, and you're seeing. It's that thing that you have in songs where, as you learn more information, you start to understand the song in more detail. That we talked about with you know mm-hmm. folk songs and ballads and all that kind of stuff, and so it, it kind of does a little bit of that. Yeah, and one of the things that I noticed over the course of this film is there's one particular part of the theme that was so reminiscent to me of Oklahoma. It was the there's like a repeated note that sounded a lot like um sorry with the fringe on top uh and i was like oh man i wonder i wonder if that's a conscious choice or i wonder if i couldn't really figure out if it was a conscious choice based on the composer of just both richard rogers and dimitri tiomkin were pulling from the same sort of harmonic and melodic language to create their their feels i tried googling it and no one else had really talked about it so it always makes me a little nervous when my brain makes a connection and then i google it and no one else has talked about it but i don't know hopefully after we get like a million downloads someone will tell me whether or not (laughs) someone with more musicology knowledge will tell me whether or not i'm making things up or not. But what is kind of funny is Fred Zinneman directed the movie version of Oklahoma, which wouldn't happen until three years after this, but Oklahoma opened on Broadway in 1943. So precedes this movie by about nine years. Yeah. And you see a lot of similarities in the way that the film of Oklahoma 
was shot to the way this this film was shot. A lot of oh, similar uh, a lot of similar methods that Fred Zinnemann uses. So that's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to go back and and watch that. I haven't seen it since I since I was in high school or maybe even before high school. So by this point, Fred Zinnemann was an accomplished director. He had about a dozen movies under his belt. He had several Oscar nominations. So he had done The Seventh Cross in 1944, for which that movie received one Oscar nomination, which I believe was for him for directing. And then The Search in 1948, which was four nominations, and I believe his first win. And then The Men in 1950, Teresa in 1951, and then High Noon in 1952 and the high noon just exploded with the academy awards it got seven nominations and four wins including uh he didn't win for direction for this film but gary cooper did win and then editing it won for best film editing and then best score and best original song yeah it was one of the one of the darlings of the academy awards in that year for sure yeah the that was all that i wanted to say about the Dimitri and Fred, our our little buddy cop group. Who who did you have? Oh well, I did want to go back to Fred Cinnamon for just a second to talk. Oh uh, sure, sure, uh, sure. One of the things that he does in his cinematography, and he has a cinematographer on here, so it's not you know it's not just him. He's working with Floyd Crosby, famously the father of David Crosby of Crosby. What's the band called? Crosby, Stills and Nash. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yeah, exactly. So their father was the was the cinematographer on this film, but he doesn't do a lot of stuff afterwards because he gets put on the Hollywood blacklist. Oh no! Yeah, so it it kind of destroys his career doing this film, and he he ends up doing some things afterwards, but he doesn't get the same kinds of everything that you see that he does afterwards is basically like a bunch of different B movies and things like that because because of the blacklist. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty terrible. But uh, he, let's see, the thing with Fred Zinnemann is that he was one of the first directors that was pushing for a lot of cin- cinematography that was on location. So mm. uh, going into places with natural landscapes instead of doing everything on sets uh, is very common to just do it, basically everything on sets before this time period. During the Hollywood studio formula, you know, they just had sets that were in the Hollywood studios that were interchanging and they could just move parts in and out. The city in this one is shot on one of those sets. And so you see this very realized little western town. But that's because of the way the sets were at the time period. You're just moving sets in and out of all different kinds of movies and whatnot. But all the things that happen like at the train station or out in in the environment, those are shot on location in different places. And because of that, you get really just really interesting shots that are a little bit different than you were getting in other films at the time period. Oh, interesting. And I, th- I believe I had seen that he had a background as a cameraman. Uh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, You so you can sort of see the penchant for cinematography in in his direction for sure for sure and there's there's a lot of i love the cinematography in this film they do a lot of really cool stuff but again we can talk to the uh, talk about that stuff when we get to when we get to all the other stuff later on and the other thing about george zinnemann that i find interesting is as a as someone who 
was a survivor of the Holocaust, whose both his parents were killed in the Holocaust. This film, he really wanted to have the main character kind of represent someone that was willing to fight back uh, instead of just letting terrible things happen. So mm. that ties in a lot with the story of this film and the way that he wanted to tell it. Yeah, makes sense. Who else did you have that you wanted to talk about? So the other people that I had on my list to talk about, you know, we watched Pride of the Yankees last week with Gary Cooper. So we talked a little bit of, about Gary Cooper last week. But one of the things that we mentioned is that Gary Cooper went through kind of three stages in his career where he was like started out as the pretty boy cowboy with like all the makeup on, very handsome face on screen. Uh, and then he went through the period of his career where he did like the Pride of the Yankees and he played a little bit older characters that were a, a little bit more rugged mm. and all of those things. And then High Noon is the start of a transition period for him where he plays these older, kind of jaded characters, weather-worn characters, that are reconciling themselves with the violence that they have in their past. And so basically everything from High Noon going forward represents this shift in the Gary Cooper persona and the way that the way that he was viewed. And so like in The Sopranos, when they talk about Gary Cooper being, you know, the strong silent type and all of that stuff, a lot of that comes from high noon but also the films that he does in this time period where he's establishing this kind of character that you know this strong silent type of character but also this morally conflicted character that's going through like trauma and difficult things and trying to process all of that it sort of is a nice nice parallel to his artistic life so it makes sense that he would be able to draw on some real life experience or at least real life feelings for some of that later later career stuff for sure yeah one, one of the things that you had mentioned is that he looked a lot thinner in this one and so you know i it's it's interesting he's he's gone through a bunch of physical changes he looks a lot different than he did in pride of the yankees and he's just i don't know it's it's interesting to see the transition of his character over time and the way that matches up with his personal life yeah it was was cool to see. One of the things we didn't talk about last week that I meant to talk about was how jarring it is watching him play the young version of Lou Gehrig in that movie at the at the beginning of the movie, but you don't you don't have to do any of that adjustment for this film. For this film, he's just there for the for the whole movie and starts from the beginning and goes just feels fully present for the whole thing. It does. Yeah. Though he does get progressively dirtier and more like, you know, <laughs> as, as the film goes on. By the end, you're just like, oh, man, this guy has had a rough day. It's all that dust, man. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, the other person that I want to talk about that was involved in this one is Carl Foreman, the writer of the film. And he did the screenplay. Yes, he wrote the screenplay. And but they took his name off and were going to leave him uncredited for this film. What? Because he was brought into the House Un-American Activities Committee in the middle of filming for this film and was a hostile witness, as in he refused to answer their questions. And he refused to name names of people for them to prosecute. So he was an uncooperative witness. And so he was immediately blacklisted. And so for this film, they tried to get his name taken off. But 
Fred Zinneman and Gary Cooper, and I think Fred Kramer, is that the name? Of, I can't remember. Um, Kramer, the guy that's involved, but whatever, whatever his name is. Uh, Stanley Kramer. They were like, no, we're going to have his name on the on the credits anyways, and they really went hard to fight for him. In fact, Gary Cooper went and testified before the... went and he offered to testify before the House and American Activities Committee and vouch for Foreman's character and all of those things. But Carl Foreman really, when he was writing this, he talks about how he felt like the Gary Cooper character in the metaphor for McCarthyism and that everything in his life was feeling like that because every step that he took, he was being put in front of the House and American Activities Committee with basically no defense and all the friends that should have been there to back him up kind of disappeared as he went into all of this. And the only people that really stood up for him was, you know, Gary Cooper and a little bit of Fred Zinneman. Yeah, it's really just like so difficult to underestimate the undersell the toll that the Red Scare took artistically on in particularly in in cinema. Like so many people just didn't get to work because of this prejudice. For sure. Yeah. It's a Afterwards he works he still gets to work a bit fascinatingly well, um, that's nice he gets blacklisted <laughs> but then people still like bring him in to do stuff and it's a lot of his friendship with friend fred zinneman and gary cooper that allows this to happen he works with fred zinneman afterwards and then one of the interesting stories about this now the thing is is that they didn't uh, carl foreman and gary cooper did not agree very much politically they were uh, carl foreman was a very liberal person in Hollywood and Gary Cooper was mm-hmm. very conservative but the friendship that they developed over this one every movie that they did afterwards the Carl Foreman would always send the script over to Gary Cooper first and offer and like trying to get him the role for every film that he did afterwards and Ga- Gary oh, Cooper turned nice. it down every single time but he you know <laughs> he tried every single time with every film that he did afterwards I don't want to go to the dance I just want to be invited yeah for sure so all right do you have any other people that you want to talk about or any other personnel the only thing just a quick thing that i wanted to mention is this is like grace kelly's first film not a lot to say about her in this one Uh, she's great she's fantastic but i didn't have a lot to add about about her history and whatnot but it is basically her first film and scene someone that's going to become one of the biggest stars in the history of movies in basically their first film was a fun experience Yeah, it's nice to see someone's freshman turn or near freshman turn. So the only the only other thing we have to go through here before we get into the back half of the show is any advice or insert for insert any advice or insight for first time viewers. And I don't have a ton. I think a lot of this movie speaks for itself, but I did. So we had a bit of a snafu and you're probably noticing now or you may notice now if you boot up your Amazon Prime that this movie was taken off of Amazon by the time we got around to recording it, but watching it and recording it. But we had already mentioned it in the last episode and Matt had already done a good amount of research for it. So we decided to move forward with the movie anyway. And because I had some credit in my Google Play account, I went to rent it on Google Play 
and then I was just going to Chromecast it to my TV. But when I did that, it I could not get it to Chromecast in the correct aspect ratio. And so I ended up having to like get a refund from Google Play and then renting it from Amazon. So I, I don't know. It's possible it was just my TV or the universe spiting me for not renting it from Amazon when we were doing our Amazon <laughs> Prime episode. But that is something that I wanted to alert people to if they are going to have to rent this movie that you'll probably be better off trying to rent it from at least something that has an app built into your TV because the the Chromecasting did not did not work for me. Whereas I watched it on PS5. So I mm. got it through Google Play and then streamed it through YouTube on my PS5 and the aspect ratio was fine. It worked okay. Yeah. yeah. So the you know <laughs> something something to to notice. I was like I I switched back to my phone and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is this is definitely wrong. Everything looks so so stretchy (laughs) and the only other thing i wanted to mention is the this film is it's really quick it's about 85 minutes uh, i think maybe under just under 90 minutes and it goes really fast and i think this film will be the most impactful if you're really able to just carve out that 90 minutes and watch it straight through it's really just a slow build and yeah, I, I I think that will give you your best viewing experience here. I think so too. I'm I'm I generally like to watch films and break them up into pieces, but this one just moves so quick. I felt no reason to do that, and it's pretty short. You can just sit down and find some you know 85 minutes to put aside to watch this one, and it's it's it keeps you engrossed because it everything builds on the previous thing in. The tension is constantly building in this slow way until the very end, the resolution. That breaking that up feels like you'd lose a lot of value. Yeah. And then you had one other thing you wanted to mention, yeah? Yes, just that the film is in black and white. That's not an issue for me, and I think for a lot of people it's you know not too big of an issue. But I know there's people that are hesitant about watching films that are in black and white. And we have a few this season that we're covering, but give you know give it a chance this film was filmed in black and white during the color era it's in black and white because they couldn't afford with their seven hundred thousand dollar budget to film it in color (laughs) so they just did it in black and white but it the cinematography looks really good and it doesn't like it doesn't feel old and a lot of the reasons why people hesitate with black and white films is because some of these older ones are films that are restored from low quality film and so you have a lot of artifacts that are in the image that make it look different or you'll have like static on the screen or different things like that this one's not like that it's really high quality black and white film oh yeah i didn't didn't even notice that so yeah great so we will leave you here you'll get a little a little jingle and then we'll be back for the back half of the show
All right, welcome back. So, Manny, what was your reaction to the movie watching it this time? I really, really loved this film this time. It's, after I watched it, I ended up, you know, putting it on my flick chart, and then I just thought, I'm going to go look at where I have it, where I have my westerns ranked to see where it comes, and I have it as my mm-hmm. number two favorite western ever, so it, it made it up, that, that, you know, it speaks a lot to the quality of this film, but also that, you know, I don't enjoy the western genre generally as much, but this one, it just... The character development, the the way that it tells the story is so nuanced and complex that I fell in love with this film. And additionally, I felt it I felt a really strong connection with the themes of this film for mm-hmm. like for myself and where society is at right now. Like I really identified with the Gary Cooper ca- character. So I enjoyed this one quite a bit. What about you? Yeah, I also really liked this one and I Again, I guess as long as we're covering famous films or iconic films, this is going to keep happening. But I didn't, I didn't realize how how many shots from this movie were famous, especially a lot of the shots of the clock. Yeah, and I was not, I didn't realize how big a character time was going to be in this film, which I guess in retrospect it's called high noon and (laughs) it tells you from the beginning like i didn't recognize that the conceit of the film was going to be like we're going to tell you what time the climax of this film is and we're just going to be a slow moving train toward that inevitable climax for the entire film and we're going to be pretty transparent about with you on screen about how much time is left in the film because we're telling you when it's going to end yeah it wasn't i didn't pick up that it was happening in real time until about like 15 20 minutes in in. i was like oh they're just this movie is just the length of time that it takes to get from when this happens all the way to high noon where the climax happens yeah i i did look it up and i guess it's not fully in real time yeah but it was close enough that it felt like it was in real time to me and that was once that clicked in i was like oh it's very easy to see how this film became one of as famous as it is and one of the best of all time. And that was before I had even really dug into the, the way it turned old themes of Westerns on its head. But I, I I think we'll talk about that in, in the scenes. So we don't need to get into that here Uh, on the same note. It's like the, it's not quite real time, but it kind of feels like it. Uh, Fred Zinneman talked about that. And that was a deliberate choice that they made because he was saying when someone gets into this kind of situation where you're like, your life is on the line, you feel a time dilation effect where it feels like time stretches out. Mm. So he wanted to mimic that kind of feel uh, in the film as well. So it was it not only was is it meant to be in real time, but it's also meant to mimic this feel, feeling of time dilation. And he had an incident during the film where there was, you know, he almost died during the filming and he had that feeling. And so that's part of why he wanted to uh, make it feel that way. So he was able to incorporate it into the film. Yeah, I'll I'll just uh, mention what it was real quick or I'll forget. But there's the scene where the train is coming on the tracks towards the camera. 
And so they mm-hmm. put the camera down on the tracks to be able to get this shot of it. And the train was supposed to come and then stop right there. And so he was down with mm. the camera. But then, so the train is coming and they flash the white smoke out of it. That's like, hey, everything's good. And then they flash the black smoke that's like, hey, the brakes are out. But they didn't know what the signals meant, him and the camera operator. Oh, no. So they're just sitting there and the train's coming. They're like, I don't think that's <laughs> slowing down. So then, like, at the last minute, the camera operator jumps out and grabs him and pulls him out. But the camera got left behind and got completely smushed and destroyed. Except oh, no. for the cassette of til- film that was in it. They were able to pull it out and they used that shot in the film. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, so, and so he talked about that event, and he's like, you know, I realized the way that uh, time kind of dilates, and then he wanted to make the film feel that way as well. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about initial reaction, or should we talk about some of the scenes here? The, the other thing I wanted to say, the reason why I connected with it so much is because of all the, it feels like we're going through kind of like another Red Scare in America right now, and... As a teacher, mm-hmm. with all of the anti-CRT and anti-LGBTQ stuff going on in schools, I sometimes feel this same kind of thing where it's like you're yelling for everyone to pay attention to this horrible thing that's happening. And everybody, for their own whatever reasons they may have, just like in this film, they're just not paying attention and looking the other way and letting it happen. And it feels like this slow-moving train crash and that you're getting left on an island by yourself to face against, you know, Nazis that are coming to take over. And I think that's what the director and the writer were going for in this film. And this is why it felt so relevant. Like, it felt like you could make this movie today and it would just connect with audiences because of that. Well, I think they have. I think it has been. It's been remade at least once, right? Yeah. Yeah. I even, well, yeah, I hadn't seen this until yesterday so i obviously haven't seen the remake either (laughs) yeah let's let's get into and talk about some of these scenes and we'll get a little more into it at at that point the first scene that i wanted to talk about here was the scene between the scene where will and amy briefly flee so this is right after they got married and you know he finds out (laughs) he says I someone says I think the town's gonna be able to make it one night without without a sheriff or not a sheriff. A marshal. Right? What are the what's the marshal, yeah. Without a marshal. <laughs> well, if you hadn't said that, then maybe the movie would have been fine, but you did, so it's not. And then they they know that the who's the guy who's coming on the train? What's his name? Oh, Frank Miller. Frank Miller, yeah. They know that Frank Miller is gonna be gunning for for our boy will kane here and so they say yo you got you're you're newlywed you gotta get out of town well you just start going now and just drive as fast as you can and you get out of here and he does he gets they get on the on the horse-drawn carriage and the so this fooled me in a couple ways because first i was like i hadn't really like put together that we were going to have as strong a hero's journey from a movie that was 70 years old and so i thought this was going to end up being a chase film at this moment where you know we were in a bunch of different locations and then they eventually get chased down and then there's a final showdown somewhere which 
really makes no sense with the title of the film. So I should not have thought that, but that is what I thought. But instead, what this scene did was it functions as the refusal to the call. And it's a very good one. It's one of the more believable. A lot of times when I'm watching a movie, I feel like the refusal to the call is a place that I bump on. It's a place where I'm like, oh, they just did this because the... 12 steps or the Campbell 17 steps say that you have to do it to humanize the protagonist. But in this case, I really felt like I believed that everything going into it was happening so fast that he was like, yeah, I guess I do have to leave. I do have to leave. And it wasn't until he got out of town that and everything slowed down a little bit that he realized, oh, no, you know, I actually I can't do this. I have to I have to go back. Yeah, it's it didn't quite fool me, but the biggest reason why is because there's the one shot from this film that's very iconic where it shows him like standing in the street next to the marshal's office and then it pans up and shows the whole street and everything's empty. And that mm. shot I've seen like as a gif or whatever. And so I remember the shot and I also remembered the sign that says Marshall. And the, I re, when I saw this film and saw the Marshall sign, I was like, oh, that's where that happens. And so I knew he would be back here for the showdown because of that. So, But at the same time, the motivations worked so well for me at this part. I really felt, really like, do, yeah. I really felt like he's going through this turmoil of whether he should stay and fight or whether he should run. And the thought process, like, they're going to come and chase us down anyway if we run. This is a fight that has to happen. And I have to be... This is my fight. I have to be there. Yeah. And there are... um, I think all of the dialogue between him and Amy here is green-screened or on on a set or something. But there are a couple faraway shots that end up as close-ups where I'm pretty sure they did not use stunt doubles, that it's just them riding in the the horse carriage or what, whatever you call it. Yep. And th- those were really cool shots, I thought. Well, and there's a couple of shots that make it really clear that, it, that, that it's not all like on a screen or something or on a set because they have that one where they, where they turn around and then yeah. and they just drive through like off road and it's bumping up and down. And I'm like, wow, that would have been, uh, I'm imagining the bumpiness that would be on that, on that turn. But it really establishes, like, we're here as we're shooting this. And obviously the conversations, it would be really difficult to get a natural-looking conversation on, you know, a horse-drawn carriage while it's bumping along a road. So it makes sense that they would have had, you know, like a matte painting scrolling behind them while they did that. But they do have a bit of it on location. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought it was cool. And then the one of the only, one of the only, like, places where I really bumped in this film that I really like it took a little time for me to get past and it was just a pretty common idea for this time you know the um guys and dolls had opened uh just a couple years earlier and the whole central conceit of that show is like men and women are fundamentally incompatible and the women are like you know men are going to do what they're going to do before you catch them. And then when you catch them, marry the man today and change his ways afterwards. And I didn't really like, there was no world in which Gary Cooper and which will was not the person 
that he was before he got married and he was a marshal and he liked being a marshal and he was proud of the work that he did and it seemed you know for him being someone in law enforcement it seemed like he did a good job doing what he did and it i don't love that it the movie expected us to like accept that this was a loving relationship where she would try and change him from the person that he was yeah yeah it's i totally get that i do think this film is doing an interesting it sets it up as a foil in order to like establish its themes but it does depend on that conceit in order to establish that foil so and, and i like the foil that they're doing and the kind of character journey that he goes on but i think nowadays you could probably I don't know. You could probably do it a little bit differently, but I honestly, I feel like nowadays they would just make the film and have, and it would be Amy's character that goes through the change. And I don't feel like a modern studio would embrace the, the pacifism. They'd just be like, Oh yeah, no, I guess pacifism was a dumb idea from the beginning. Whereas in this one, Will Kane kind of embraces the ideology by the end of the film to some extent after the shootout. So I don't know how that would end up in in a modern in a modern film. Well, maybe maybe I just talked myself into, and you talked me into disagreeing with myself, because you said that, and he talks himself into partway her position, but then the next scene that I wanted to talk about is the film between Helen Ramirez and Amy Kane, yeah. and the she actually ends up also coming a little bit towards Will because, and this is a really, we'll talk a little bit about the scene, but just to jump to the end of the scene, there's the moment where Helen basically says to Amy, like you under, like this is who he is. He has to stay and he has to do that. And if you don't understand that, like I can't explain it to you. Yeah. And so, Amy, I guess Amy does end up learning the lesson here because she does come back and and help him. Uh, also, this this scene with Grace Kelly and Katie Hirado in that scene, oh, brilliant performances from both of them. They're so good. It is, yeah, it's it's a really nice scene, and it was not one that I was expecting. And a lot of the like, I was expecting there to sort of be. I was expecting it to be very tropey, where it was going to be maybe the uh, a 1950s version of like a, a cat fight or their perception of a cat fight. That's what I was worried about as well. Yeah, and all of the loadedness that comes with that term. But instead, they had a very mature conversation and it, you know, <laughs> it's not a scene that's going to pass the Bechdel test because it was ultimately all about a man about Will, but it yeah, but it was a mature conversation and there was back and forth and they both had points of view and they both had legitimate points and And both of their characters develop over the course of the film. Like these are very fully yeah. realized female characters with yeah, with their own motivations and their own perspectives, and it was really good. I love the scene where Katie Hirado, uh, Helen Ramirez, the character, she says, "If he were my man, I'd be there defending him." And she's like, "Well, why yeah. don't why don't you?" And she's like, "Well, he's not my man." It was just subtle in the way the dialogue was, but the performances—you see this like tension and uh, you know this like 
romance that obviously Will Kane and Helen Ramirez had, but in a way that Amy isn't jealous of, just curious about, and I loved their scene together. Well, I think she is a little jealous, or there is some jealousy, but then it's it's quelled when she learns from Helen that she hadn't, like the entire time that her and that Amy and Will were together, she hadn't seen him at all. Yeah. And I think that that's a big moment for the audience, but also for Amy, where you learn like, oh, Will actually is on the up and up because you did see him earlier in the movie going to talk to Helen. And it's like, is this something he should be doing? Like, we don't really know because we're we've been thrust into the action of the film. Yeah. And I I do also think there's a little bit of jealousy from Amy in the context of like, Helen understands him in a way that she kind of never will because of the way that Helen, like it seems that Helen was a witness that helped put Frank Miller away and helped do that in the previous episode where he was there. And so she was involved in the action and Amy wasn't going to be. And so is it seemed like she was a little bit jealous of just Helen's understanding of her husband in a way that she couldn't grasp. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does totally make sense. And I think that is the implication because I think, I think we're supposed to pick up. There's the line where that she had previously been involved with Frank Miller before she was involved with Gary Cooper with Will Kane. And I, and then I think, you know, there's the scene where her and her current beau, where she basically stands up for herself and she tells him, sorry, you're a coward. So therefore we're finished. And then she also tells him, yeah, you don't get to touch me if I don't want you to touch me. I love that scene. Right now. I don't want you to touch me. Yeah. It was really, really great. And so I think we're supposed to understand that, she has all of this character development that she's already gone through For sure. and she is the fully fully realized human that she is and i was i was so ner- i like paused the movie even though i said in our thing <laughs> not to pause it and to watch <laughs> it straight through i had to pause because i was so worried that they i just couldn't tell because it was in black and white that they had cast an actress in brown face mm. for this because they did over accentuate her makeup in a way that for sure maybe was not the best but no they they cast a mexican actress for this for a character who i believe was half mexican half half american and i was very pleasantly surprised by that and yeah she does does a great job here she does she's fantastic and i i was pretty sure that they i didn't go look it up but i was like pretty sure because her accent is so good it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like she would be able to pull off those lines unless she's a native spanish speaker so i i was impressed by her accent but i just thought there was no way from 1952 that they would have done that (laughs) i i i just assumed people were racist i mean (laughs) they were racist so that makes sense there's uh, also a little bit of precedence, though, because Gary Cooper dated a Mexican actress for a long time. That's um, right. So yeah. I don't know. So 
I, I agree with you that there's a lot of reasons to think that, but f- for me, because of some of the context of those things, I kind of didn't see that. Though, apparently, as I'm just, like, reading about her, she was also blacklisted because she was accused of being a communist sympathizer during the McCarthy era. So, you know. Gotta catch them all, I suppose. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> Ugh, wild. Oh, I wanted to ask you, that, so there was a moment in this film that I wasn't really able to fully suss out what it meant. And I believe it immediately precedes this scene where Amy asks <laughs> that really creepy hotel guy yeah. what about Miss Ramirez. And I believe he corrects her and says Mrs. Ramirez. And I wasn't sure who. what's the implication supposed to be here i don't know but i can give you the little bit that i saw in the film that i had the same question and couldn't figure it out but there is another time where the name ramirez pops up and it is the name of the bar it's ramirez's Mm. and so i wondered if maybe she's married to the guy who runs the bar but it's just not clear at all Oh, well, so that actually makes sense because she she sells the bar at one point. So my gut now that you say that, my guess is, is that she's a widow. It could maybe. be. Yeah, that makes sense. So maybe maybe her husband had the store. She's a widow. And then she sold the bar. I don't know. It's it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, that that's my guess now that you said that. And, you know, presumably if she wants to retain the Mrs. Ramirez then she loved her husband and is bummed he's dead. That makes sense. Strange, I know. <laughs> Shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about these first two scenes, or should we talk about That's our it next for me. Ones? All right. What's our, what's our next scene that you had? So the next scene is where you have, throughout this film, Will Kane goes through, like, crises of trying to decide if maybe he should just leave or does he need to stay and there's a moment where he goes to the stables and he's like looking at the horse and then his deputy harvey pell comes to to chat with him and they had a big falling out at the start of this movie he basically tells will kane to bribe him to help to help stop frank miller and he says no i can't do that but it's your responsibility to to help but in any case, at this point, he comes and he sees Harvey Pell sees him looking at the horse and says, oh, you're thinking you're thinking of running away and says, yeah, I was kind of thinking that. And so he starts saddling the horse up for him and getting it ready. And he says, you know, it makes sense. There's it's pretty scary. And the and Will Kane admits to being afraid that he's scared of what's going to happen. But then once he sees the horse being saddled up, he backs out of it and he's like, you know, I can't do it. I was tired and scared, but it's my responsibility to stay. And people will do a lot of stuff when they're tired and scared, but I can't leave. I have to stay. And it seems like everybody in town is trying to get me to leave. And then they have a big fight and, you know, it's, it's, you know, they get punched in the face pretty bad. Will Kane gets dirtied up a lot and, uh, you know, gets scraped and bloodied. And he ends up defeating Harvey Pell and dumping water on him and going off to do his business. But I found this one really interesting because so often in these kinds of films, especially in Westerns and John Wayne Westerns were so popular at the time period. It was just 
the way that films were made that you didn't have the main character express fear or doubt about their mission Mm. or their cause. And in this one, Gary Cooper absolutely does. He clearly says that he's afraid and that this is a difficult circumstance, but he's willing to do his duty anyway. Yeah, I I wrote down the timestamp of this and it's about a one it's just over the hour mark, so an hour and a minute. And this was one of the things that surprised me the most about this film was and maybe if I had more Western experience, this would not have surprised me, but there's no action leading up to this. This is our first moment of action. Yeah. Uh, and it comes at the one hour mark and it's really just everything is building up to there is that common for westerns proceeding not at all yeah that is very uncommon i thought it was very effective and in a way by the time i hit this point i wasn't expecting us to get a fist fight because it was like well we've gone we've gone this long without action i guess you know, the there won't be any action until everything finally bubbles up and that clock hits noon. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that the first bit of violence that happens is him getting a fist fight with his deputy, the person that's supposed yeah. to be his ally. Like in any other Western, that's the guy that would have been, you know, that would have been by his side through thick and thin. You know, they would have been basically like brothers. And in this one, he's not. And they end up having the first violence of the film is a fist fight between these two characters. I think it's really iconic and makes this film stand out. And it's really the the reason it feels like everything's bubbled over here is it's the culmination of Will just getting rejected at every turn. Mm-hmm. And it's something that wasn't it wasn't immediately clear to me while I was watching the movie. Like, I feel like, I I don't know if it was a me failing or if, I feel like if it was a modern film, these failures would have felt a little more, there would have been a little more um, signposts just Mm -hmm. as like, you know, something like, well, we've got seven options for people and now we have six, now we have five, now we have four. And so it wasn't really until... I guess the scene after this one that I realized all of the failures that had happened, but what's happening here is the, he's trying to defend this town, this town that he loves and systematically everyone in this town turns their back on him. And it's, as you said, his deputy and it's his old friends and it's the entire church and you know, no, I don't think the the symbolism of the church turning their back on him and doing the wrong thing here, not standing up for what is right is is lost. It really struck me as a really stark anti, at least anti-organized religion message. Yeah, well, and additionally, the way that it happens when he's at the church and the mayor gets out and is like, listen, we know the right thing to do here is to back up Will Kane. He's been a good sheriff and he's a good man. But think of the money we'll make if we don't do it. And he just yeah. makes a blatantly capitalistic argument in the church, standing in front of the pulpit, 
arguing essentially from the pulpit, hey, for capitalist reasons, we should not help you out. Sorry, uh, Will Kane. You've been a great sheriff. You're a great man. Everyone knows how great you are. But your life is not worth the amount of money that we could get if we just let you die. So go on your way. Um, I, that scene really and that's really where me. mega churches were born. Uh, right? I know, right? So <laughs> In this moment. It just, cool. The, uh, yeah, that that scene really really hit me when it happened. And you know, the actor there that's performing it, Thomas Mitchell, famously performs Uncle Billy in It's a Wonderful Life. So ah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had that connection, and I'm like, Uncle Billy, you can't do this to me. So this <laughs> <laughs> it's something where because I just was a little too dense in the moment in my initial viewing. I feel like this whole middle sequence will be more effective on me on future rewatches. For sure. Did were you able to tap into the emotional rejection that was continuing to mount, oh, or I, I did... picked up on it before this, but I'm trying to remember where it was. I can't remember. One of the scenes where it really hit me is where he talked to like his his old friend that was the former marshal. And I can't remember mm, if yeah, that was yeah, before. Yeah. And then the other scene that really hit me is the one, the, like his best friend that told his wife that he was, you know, not to tell him he was there. And so I can't remember which one happened before this, but either of those scenes. I believe both. I believe both happened before okay. this. I believe his, the wife lying to him happens and then he goes to the church and then he talks to his mentor. Yeah. And then maybe he goes to the bar and then this scene happens. Yeah. I I think that's the order. I can't remember the order of events exactly. So, but in any case, I flicked through it before we started recording. So, <laughs> I I think that's what it is. Uh yeah, it's just when this all happens. Yeah. You realize what it is exactly that's going down that he's going to be facing off against these and it's not just that he's facing off against Frank Miller and his gang. It's four guys he's going to be facing off against. And all he yeah. needs is, like, anyone to help him. You know, all he needs is... If he can get, like, two or three guys, he should be fine. Uh, because they have the home field advantage. And it, he just gets rejected by everyone in the entire town. Until the 14-year-old kid... Mm-hmm. Is the only one that offers. I th- what I thought was going to happen after this, they didn't do it. But there was the guy in the cell behind him, and I thought he was going to turn to the mm-hmm. guy in the cell and be like, "Hey, do you want to help me? I'll, you know, I'll let you out of the cell." But instead, the guy's like, "Oh, your sentence is over, and you can just go." And he takes off running. And no, because he just did his job. Yeah, like, he just does his job. <laughs> one last time, doing his job before dying for the cause. Oh, jeez, Louise. Yeah, it's a. And I assumed he was dying in this film. I did, too. Yeah. I did, too. Yeah, I thought he was going I to. I just, you know, he's going to get gunned down. This is not going to, it's not going to go well. And Will Kane is done. So. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and talk about the climax. Then. For sure. So in the climax, Will Kane is, it starts, for me, the climax kind of starts with that shot. Uh, where it shows him standing right outside the marshal's office. And then it pans up and shows the whole city is empty except for him. No one's out there to back him up. And then Frank Miller shows up with his with his guys and the four of them uh, walk into the town and they're going to find Will Kane and kill him. 
And I assumed that there was going to be like a f- shootout in the street, but that's not what happened. I did too, yeah. Yeah, Will Kane kind of hides behind the building as they come, which is, you know, it's a good thing or else he would have been super dead. But he hides behind this building. He gets off one shot and then they chase after him. There's a moment where they run into the stables and he's hiding in a spot where he has a, a, some cover and a good position. But then they light the stables on fire and... I thought those horses were all going to die. And he goes and rescues the horses. It's a, it's just phenomenal. Not only does he rescue the horses, but the it's, I thought it was also very clever. He uses those horses to be able to, to get out of the quandary that he's in, get out of being trapped with his back against the wall. One of the things that I loved about this scene, he does this maneuver where he like rides on the side of the horse and it looks so good. Yeah. Like I was worried the horse was going to get shot, but it was a great little maneuver that he uses to get out and the horses all survived and great moment here. Do you have any sense if that was him or a, or a double? Uh, I'm not sure. He was, Gary Cooper was a stunt writer when he started out his career. So he yeah. had the, he has the skills to do that, but I don't know if he was a little bit old to be able to pull off that kind of difficult acrobatic maneuver. So yeah, I didn't go sense. look that up. In any case, they come back into the town. He's able to fight off two of the guys by himself, but then he gets pinned down and he's coming around a corner and there's a guy behind him that's lining up the shot to kill him. But his wife had come back and was in the marshal's office looking for him. And the gun that his deputy had left behind earlier is on the wall. And she grabs it and leans out the window and shoots the one... The one gang member that's there sneaking up ready to shoot him and then frank miller goes and grabs her and pulls her out and is holding her hostage will kane comes up and he gives the ultimatum you know that thing don't come any closer all that kind of stuff then amy kind of pushes away and gets away just a little bit and will kane's able to shoot him and defeat him and you know they win Everything's wonderful. The town comes to celebrate him. And he takes the star off of his chest and throws it down on the ground and, like, leaves. And that's the end of the film. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a – the climax was really I, – I liked the way this turned out. I was torn about whether I would have preferred for him to, like, actually end up dying or if I preferred better where his wife ends up, you know, defending him at the last moment. The one person that defends him in the entire story ends up being his Quaker pacifist wife. And But that moment where he throws the star on the ground is so iconic and so good that I think it's worth having the ending the way it is and having him live in order to do that. Yeah, I I agree. There was a lot I liked about this climax. One thing that I kept thinking about through the entire movie, because you don't see Frank Miller until until there's like 10 to 15 minutes left in the movie. And all they talk about is like how fearsome and how horrible he is. And I really was like, man, I don't know what they are going to do from 1952 to make make him like own up to his reputation here like i don't in in a modern film i think you'd like you'd you would have had some flashbacks of him doing like really gruesome stuff or being a really great shot or something but instead for this movie i guess they just didn't do anything they just used all of the lead up to and assumed that you would assume he was just as bad as as they had said yeah it's a 
normally you'd have a little bit of dog kicking, right? He kicks some dogs, and you're like, yeah, that guy's evil. Yeah. But in this one, they, they yeah. just let his reputation speak for himself. Yeah, and I think at first I was like a little disappointed by it, but I think in retrospect, I think I'm I actually really like it. I like the restraint of that. And that like it was just me putting ex- my own expectations onto the film. For sure. I, I like it better as well. I think another major reason why they didn't do it is because they just were limited on budget. Like they would have had difficulty going and shooting mm, some flashbacks yeah. and whatnot. And they, they had to plan out and choreograph everything that they were shooting and like how to put it all together. Cause they, I can't remember how long it was they had to shoot, but it's like 12 days or something. So oh, wow. yeah, it was yeah. really short amount of time. One of the things that I, that I found so interesting about this moment is when Amy pulls out the gun to defend him Mm -hmm. it's a you know i was thinking a lot about that one for for myself i am a pacifist and so it was interesting for me to see a character that was so clearly articulating my viewpoints on pacifism with amy in the film and there's this moment where she talks about how she has seen violence and her brother and her father were both killed in gunfights i can't remember the details of what she says i think that's it i don't think she offers any other details yeah so and so i really love that that it's this is a character who she's not choosing her pacifism blindly she understands the consequences she understands the choices that she's making and the difficult moral decision that it is and then in this moment she ends up pulling out the gun and shooting this guy but i whenever i'm looking at like articles about this film they always talk about her talking about it as if she is abandoning her religious beliefs but in in the research you know there's in pretty much every kind of pacifism there's a lot of pacifisms that aren't like this but most kinds of pacifism there is exceptions for self-defense when there is a dire imminent threat that someone is in an imminent threat of grievous bodily harm or death that you can defend yourself or defend another person Uh, and this is true in many expressions of quaker pacifism as well and even stronger when it's someone else who is in danger so if it's yourself Mm -hmm. that's in danger there's a lot more of a, a moral mandate to to go farther in the expression of of pacifism but when someone else is in danger it is okay to use a method to protect those people of self-defense and so i don't think this is an abandoning of her faith or her pacifism i think it's standing up for her principles she waits until it is that he is in imminent threat of death there is a guy behind him about to shoot and kill him in the street and she waits until that moment before she does any kind of violence to to protect him yeah yeah it's probably it was one of the most surprising moments of the movie to me and also one of the most moving. I didn't <laughs> didn't expect her to be to take a shot. Yeah. To take a shot there. They they build up her character so well because she's she's framed as being so like feminine and delicate. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really good movie making that that they just made it hard to believe that this would be the character the the only character in town that steps up to defend him everybody else is better positioned to defend him in the entire town but the only one that's willing to do it is his his quaker wife (laughs) 
Yeah, there there was one other moment in this climax that I wanted to talk about because it hit me specifically as an aphant, as someone with aphantasia. And it's the so it's the first gunshot in this climax where the movie's deliberately ambiguous about who gets shot. And then the reveal is Amy runs in and there's a shot of one of the henchmen on the ground. And I'm guessing if you recognize faces, this is like very easy to tell that it is <laughs> that it's not Will. But I had to I didn't get that moment of realization. I had to sort of rely on, you know, wait waiting to see him and then also a combination of just mentally knowing like they probably weren't going to kill him at this point in the movie. But it's I wanted to point it out because it was one of those moments that I'm like, I'm pretty sure everyone else gets to experience this moment of this movie differently than I do. Yeah, for sure. Because it's it's you're supposed to recognize that it's oh, I can't remember the guy. I think it's Pierce. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, so you're supposed to notice that. Yeah. And then once they once they flash to to Gary Cooper, I realized they were wearing different color hats. And I was like, oh, I probably could have remembered that. But Well, it's the different color it's hats, just... and it's also that, like, tie, you know, that he has on his collar. Mm-hmm. And those are both different. Yeah, some of that is... Some of it, I think, is harder when it's in black and white. For sure. Like, if there's color, that's, like, a little easier for my brain to latch on to and remember. But anyway, it's not a big deal. It's, you know, <laughs> it's not the movie's fault that... My brain has problems. So it goes, you know. The other thing I really liked about this climax, and I'm not sure if I've said this on the podcast before, but something that I really love in my action sequences is when they feel like chess matches, when it feels like I can see the pieces moving and I clearly see, like, the advantage bar shift. Yeah. And that's what I felt like happened here, especially in the sequence immediately preceding when he saves the horses and runs out on them, where you had the very specific shots of him, the whichever henchman it was, Miller or Colby, throwing the the lanterns into the barn. Mm -hmm. And then the first one lands there, but it doesn't, like it doesn't ignite. And then he's able to get the second one onto the bale of hay but it still doesn't ignite, and so he shoots it, and then everything everything goes up from there. And that was just like very oh, I clean love that too, yeah. visual storytelling. Yes, very very good visual storytelling. The other thing that helped me with this whole sequence is they have those establishing shots, and it's easy to track the action. It was easy for me to track where they were and where the action was happening, even when they're like moving through buildings and moving around between between different oh, alleys. Yeah. I didn't find it. That's the kind of scene where I would normally find it difficult to track where people were at, but I didn't have that challenge in this one. It was easy for me to keep in mind where it was. And the editing on this last, the the third act of this film is just really good. The cuts are so good and make the action so clear. So yeah. uh, whoever did the editing, I wasn't sure who it was, but phenomenal editing on this one. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have anything else to say about the climax, or should we move into cleanup and let's go to clean up and all the rest? I don't have a ton, but I did want to mention the way this movie opens. I was pretty 
worried about it because it it opens with some really like a couple really weird moments where one of them is right after they get married and the um the whoever's officiating the wedding says that he is gonna oh, claim an ancient privilege I was like, what? and then hugs her and i was like what is going on why are we doing this yeah. and then the the other moment was when uh gary cooper says that he needs to extract payment oh i know yeah for <laughs> whatever he whatever it is you know giving up his job and I he think. holds her on his lap until he, she gives him a kiss yeah yeah and i mean fortunately like you know grace kelly was able to um give a performance where you didn't feel skeezy about it like it was clear she was enjoying it but it still was just like yikes yeah and some of it is also and we saw this with gary cooper and pride of the yankees but not for for as good a leading man as he is not a ton of chemistry or electricity between him and either of his extremely attractive leading ladies at least not a lot of like romantic Uh, you know connection there because i felt like they had some chemistry in the not romantic scenes um yeah yeah and same same in pride of the yankees as well the dialogue sizzles but the face mashes not so much yeah the and I mean, face smash is an accurate description. Um, didn't seem like there was any kissing going on. They just, you know, smash the faces <laughs> against each other and hold them there for a few seconds. And they're like, okay, there you go. I wonder yeah. if part of that is because of the Hayes Code at the time period, there were limits to what, how much kissing you could show on screen. So I wonder if that yeah, yeah. contributes to it. I think that uh, Gary Cooper has... I don't know. He seems like a particularly bad kisser on screen, but uh, I think the Hayes Code affects that as well. Yeah, that makes sense. What else do you have for cleanup? So we hit most of the cleanup things that I wanted to say, but there was this really uh, interesting one. So in the scene where they're in the stable and he has the fight with um, uh, Deputy Harvey Pell. So that's the actor there is Lloyd Bridges, the father of Jeff Bridges and Bo Bridges. So... He, for this scene, he was really excited because he got to act with Gary Cooper, you know, and Gary Cooper was this big star and they were going to have this big fight scene. But then on the day where they were supposed to shoot it, Gary Cooper was having like back pain. And so they talked about changing it to not be a fight scene. But then Lloyd Bridges was like, well, you know, he kind of talked him into it. And the reason why he talked it into it talked him into it is because his son was hidden up in the rafters he'd sneaked him on set and hidden him in the rafters so he could watch the fight scene so he's like you know so he talked him into it because he's like don't make me look bad in front of my son you know so (laughs) so they so they go through the whole fight scene and then when gary cooper dumps the water on him his son couldn't take it anymore he's like you can't do that to my dad he gets up and ruins the take oh no um no (laughs) so they had to redo that last part um and apparently gary cooper instead of like getting mad at all he just thought it was the most adorable thing and then invited the whole family out to dinner the next night and was very nice and polite about it and everything though as you know we've said as a thematic thing throughout this thing uh lloyd bridges after this film becomes blacklisted for like four years in hollywood so you know happens to a lot of people on this film yeah, happens happens to everyone, I guess. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. 
Yeah, we uh, we did a pretty good job of hitting everything that I had marked over the course of our scene, so I don't have anything else. That's it for me as well. All right, so that will do it for High Noon. I really enjoyed this one, so hopefully other people are able to take a watch and enjoy it as well. And we apologize that it's not available on Amazon Prime anymore. You know, the it wasn't an issue for our first season with Disney+, Plus, but it's something that we just kind of have to accept is baked in with the other ones where contracts are for shorter times and then they lapse or don't get extended or whatever. So apologies for that. And as always, we do want to hear from you. Let us know how the new season's format is working for you. Let us know if you watched the movie or any movies that you've watched that we've covered and if you have any thoughts there is always we haven't done it yet but there is still always the potential for us to do sort of a bonus feedback episode and we can do that at any time so we understand at least the way i interact with movie podcasts is I don't necessarily listen currently. I listen to the podcast when I happen to watch the movie that that podcast is about. So a lot of times I'm listening to episodes that are sometimes five, six, seven years old. And so, yeah, feel free to email us whenever you listen to the show or shoot us a line. For sure. And, oh, I was just going to add on that that, you know, there's for every show that we've had so far the next day, I'm like, oh, there's a bunch of things that I kind of wish that I'd said. So even if it's yeah. a, even if it's a show that's long past, if it's three years from now and you come to this episode and you're like, hey, maybe I should send a note about High Noon. Feel free and we can, you know, figure out a um, something to talk about on a listener feedback show at some point. Yeah. And. Worst case scenario, we definitely will respond. So um, if you do want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and the email will be in the show notes, but it is podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And next week for our... I believe we're on episode five right yeah episode five we will not be doing uh we don't have a decade anniversary but we are going to be watching train to busan from 2016 which i am pretty stoked about yes very excited we got a little bit of uh, a zombie film apparently i don't know very much about this film at all so no it's popped up on a few podcasts that i've been listening to recently but i've tried to sort of skip past where they talk about it so i can remain as as fresh as possible yeah i've been avoiding media about this as well for the same reason yeah do you have a closing question for us yeah so in this film you know gary cooper goes to find who whichever friend will stand up for him you know in his most difficult moment and they all turn him down Mm -hmm. so uh except for again his quaker wife so if you found yourself in high noon this moment where you had to face down against frank miller who do you think who do you think would stand by you Um, like in real life yeah so in real life so i'm i'm really lucky in that i think i one of the things that i prize in my friends is honesty and loyalty so i think there are a lot of people who would do this for me the people that i try to keep in my life are the people that if i gave them a call and said hey i need you now that they would be on a plane the next day 
So there are a lot of people, but the person that I do have to mention the most is my best friend from high school, Evan Foss. And he's been uh, one of my two best friends from high school for as long as I remember having friends and near adult relationships. And I know if I called him and said, hey, I can you be here tomorrow? He would, you know, take the day off work and book a plane ticket for sure yeah this is one of those questions where i wrote down the question and i was like i know exactly how zach's gonna answer that so yeah, yeah. Uh, but there i he, he's my oldest friend who can answer that question but fortunately i have a lot of people in my life who who i would trust and i know that you would do the same even though you have a lot of familial stuff you would have to sure, work sure. out in order to be able to do yeah, it yeah probably i mean i don't think i'd be like you know the deputy that uh, that told you that you need to bribe <laughs> me like hey you know send a little something something this way and maybe we can work that out <laughs> and similar to you i have a lot of people in my life that i th- that i'm pretty sure i could count on though i wonder if gary cooper felt that way and then or uh, if will kane felt that way and then it all fell through um was kind of the yeah, question that sure. i had but one of the one of the people that i thought of um is I have a lot of students that I've taught at school that I think that if stuff went down that uh, that they'd be there to have my back. So, you know, shout out to, to my kids at school. You know, if you're listening to this, you should not be because, you know, don't <laughs> don't come to the podcast. I've told you not to. Right. But uh, if you are. Well, maybe after, they, after you graduate. Maybe yeah. After, after you graduate. Done with your class. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. All right. So the conceit of this movie is a time is set we're told in 75 minutes that is go time and we are just going to be barreling towards that time and so is there a time in your life where there has been a specific time and you are barreling towards it either through excitement or stress or just trying to get something in under the gun with that mix of like anticipation and fear and maybe excitement um a lot but the moment for me that is coming to my mind is every time i have to turn in grades it always turns into this like the time is ticking how much caffeine can i pump into my body so that i can stay up for you know 36 hours straight to work on this stuff um fortunately with uh covid and the pandemic we've moved pretty much everything online and grading online has been so much easier for me than grading papers so that has helped tremendously in that regard but up until that point um everybody that knows me knows that when grades are due it's like i'm shutting off for for you know a week and a half don't talk to me uh, i can't do anything i cannot help you with anything i'm completely focused on this yeah makes sense um for me what came to mind was so i worked as music intern on the broadway production of catch me if you can and I don't really have a good sense of this was if this was abnormal or not, but there were several performances, or I guess previews, so before we had opened, where there were large orchestral changes that came through. So the way the schedule works is if it's not a two-show day, then they could be rehearsing from noon to five, And then there's a show in the evening. And so if there are changes that come through from noon to five, then somehow those changes have to get to the orchestrator, get orchestrated, and then back to the copyist. And then the copyist makes sure they're going to look okay, figures out how to get those parts into the books. And then they would print those parts and then 
my job, if if the copyist was still working on other things, was I would have to tape those parts out and get them into the parts, get them into the books that the orchestra members were going to play. And if the copyist was done with his work, then uh, he would help me do that. It wasn't just like a one-man band, but if there was a lot of work, sometimes it was a one-man band. And we, so there were a couple shows where we got the music onto the stands for the first act, like minutes before the curtain went up. And then I had to run back to Russ's apartment, who was the copyist, and which was three short blocks and one long block away and tape up the parts for act two and then run back and get them on the stands for intermission. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty wild. Yeah, that's intense. Uh, All right. So thanks for joining us for High Noon, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.